Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I, hate, I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of Take Graphs, a Major League Baseball show here on the Chase Downs Podcast each and every Wednesday night. My good friend, not fan graphs own, John Taylor up there in New York City is here. John, good evening, sir. How are you? Uh, freezing, as are you. Uh, yes. This winter storm that seems to have covered the entirety of America mm-hmm. that has dumped snow everywhere. We got an unfathomable two inches of snow here the other day mm. in new york a city that fa- where famously it never snows yep uh, never sleeps never sleeps never snows you know but we're we're, we're survivors we're tough mm-hmm. we are new york strong hashtag new york strong we will survive in this apocalypse of cold weather and gusty wind we're doing okay but you like have to track out but i will say the one uh one of the bright spot so when you're in new york is that you can just walk out and you're not you're not uh apartment locked because the roads are bad you can go step out and hit hit the grocery store if you need to or go get some stuff yeah the, the downside of that is uh you to go anywhere you just have to go outside you know you mm-hmm. can't really you know one of the things i like you know i miss about a home is having stuff like storage space so you can yes. stock up on things and not have to go outside whereas here it's like you know, hey, I only have as much food as can basically fit in my fridge. Mm-hmm. And that's really it. So, but look, it, it's cold. It's not as cold as the hot stove, which has just completely iced over. Mm-hmm. But it, it's, it, to paraphrase Michael Irvin, uh, man, when we were out in that cold, it was cold. <laughs> I never thought we'd be paraphrasing Michael Irvin on this very show. Oh, laureate of America, Michael Irvin. Uh, and also a lot of interesting story. The I remember reading um, Jeff Perlman's Cowboys book. Do you ever read that? No, but I know that there are many, many Michael Irvin stories in there about what an absolutely crazy dude he was. He and Charles Haley, who apparently was like a just borderline psychopath. Um, as I think, like every '90s NFL team was required to have at least one dude who you were like, oh, he's completely mentally unbalanced. Like he. Mm-hmm. He shouldn't be allowed in polite society because he's just a violent person. Let's put him to use here in this in this gladiator combat. Gladiator combat sounds like something. It was kind of something. Gladiator combat. Um, John Taylor. Yes. The stove is cold. It's frozen. But Jordan Hicks arises so a phoenix arises with a cold stove. The starting career of Jordan Hicks rising from the ashes here. Um, I, this is fascinating. Um, I think for the giants, I mean, you obviously have Robbie Ray, uh, who we talked about last week coming down the pike here in August, July, somewhere around there, but you bring in Jordan Hicks mm-hmm. and Jordan Hicks has had a really weird MLB career to this point. 
Um, probably not gone the way that Jordan Hicks thought it was going to go. Probably not the way that the teams that have signed and developed Jordan Hicks thought it was going to go to this point. But we're going to give this a go again. And the plan is for him to be a starter for the San Francisco Giants in 2024. John, do you do you believe that that's still a realistic proposition and a worthy gamble for San Francisco? And is this something that uh, changes how you look at the Giants going into 2024? Well, I, I definitely agree it's a gamble um, because anytime you have a guy who, like Hicks, has been primarily a reliever, not just primarily a reliever throughout his career, but also someone who they've who the Cardinals tried as a starter and got very little out of before uh, pushing him back to the bullpen, you know, it, it's it's a, like the odds of this working out, I don't think are particularly high. And that that I think in particular, because with Hicks, there's a, a few things with him. One, you always worry about, I think, the injury stuff. He's not had very good arm health in the past, particularly when he was pushed to be a starter. Obviously, the workload for a starter is so much heavier than it is for a reliever. Uh, having to get through a lineup at least twice, having to, you know, throw more in the neighborhood of at least somewhere in the like 70, 75 pitches to get through. Uh, he's never really developed a particularly good third pitch. Um, it's really just been heat and the occasion, and sliders from him, um, which has worked out okay. I think what, what's interesting about Hicks is he was one of those guys really kind of in, in that huge velocity period where it was like, this dude throws 101 miles an hour without even trying. Like, he should be striking out 15 dudes in a game or per nine or whatever it is. And it just it never really has played out that way for Jordan Hicks. Um, I, I'm curious to see, and I think a, a large part of whether or not this will work for the Giants beyond whether or not Hicks can stay healthy is whether or not they can figure out some kind of third pitch or offering for him, uh, particularly something that would be useful against left-handers. Because as a right-handed reliever, you know, he, you could shield him pretty decently from lefties. Um, you know, not a guy whose stuff necessarily plays Super great against lefties. For the most part, he's had, uh, his, it's mostly been a sinker. He's thrown a four-seamer to lefties. He's got the sweeper. Um, you know, we'll see. I, I think what's going to be, again, like I said, interesting to watch is what they do with his arsenal, what they do with, you know, do they let him just air it out? Do they tell him, put some more in the tank? And so you're going from a guy who throws 100 to maybe more like 95, 96. We'll see. But what I find particularly interesting about Hicks isn't so much what, what he does for the Giants, because I don't think this materially changes anything for the Giants, you know, unless they somehow manage to, and, and there is precedent for this, you know, the, the, you know, they did something similar to this with Kevin Gaussman, who uh, left Baltimore as a reliever, came to San Francisco, they put him back into the starting rotation, um, you know, he figured something out with him, he went on to become a legit number one pitcher, which is he, he was with San Francisco for a little bit, and then now with Toronto. Um, I don't think Hicks, the, I think part of the problem with Hicks is he doesn't have as good a secondary pitch as, as Gaussman's splitter. But mm. regardless, they do have some They do have some history with this. They do have some success with it. Um, but I think it says a lot in particular about where the starting pitcher is going in the greater game of baseball. Mm. You know, and this is something we've seen over the last, really, particularly the last 10 years, but even going back now, uh, maybe even a little bit longer, the role of the starter, the importance of the starter, and the emphasis on the starter all of those have been lessened over time you particularly see it in the playoffs uh because of the atmosphere there where you know and, and some of this too is the the you know the fact that the, the three times through the third time through the order penalty is just a real applicable inescapable fact there is just no way around that one particularly when it comes to the postseason managers want to avoid that but I think when, you know, the goal with Hicks almost certainly is not going to be he's going to throw 150 plus innings. I, I really struggle to see how they're going to get that to happen, considering that, you know, you look at Jordan Hicks, Hicks's career, uh, he has never thrown more, at least as a, as a major leaguer, I, you know, not looking at the minor leagues, his career high in innings as a major leaguer is 77 and two thirds. Hmm. Uh, back in 2018, his rookie season, no starts made. I don't think realistically he threw 65 and two thirds innings last year. Best case scenario is you're probably doubling that. So you're looking for 120 to 130 innings. I think similarly, you're not. How many starts gonna, is that? Uh, well, th this is the other part of it is I don't think you're expecting either that Hicks is a guy who's going to give you more than five innings to start. Mm -hmm. I think your hope is that he turns over a lineup twice. Maybe you can get him through the top of the lineup a, a third time before you have to go to the, your bullpen or play matchups or whatever. But I, I, that's the thing. I, I, let's say five innings a turn over 120 innings, that amounts to uh, 24 starts. 
You know, that's not what that's not a full that's not a full part of a rotation. You know, most rotations, the regular starters are putting up 28, 29, 30, up to 32, 33, maybe even 35 starts, depending on uh, how, how much they're needed. But I think what you're seeing and you particularly and you especially can see it, I think, with the way that the Giants uh, have constructed their depth chart, which is, you know, they have Logan Webb atop the rotation and then a lot of guys where it feels like they may just only try to get five, four, five, maybe six innings out of them. Ross mm. Stripling, Kyle Harrison, now Hicks, Keaton Wynn. These, these are not guys I think the Giants particularly expect to throw a lot of innings. I mean, Webb threw 200 and, uh, sorry, 216 innings last year. The next highest innings total in that current projected starting rotation is Stripling with 89. And I don't really see any way he's similarly a guy who, you know, a reliever, a reliever in the past, been used as a swingman. I don't see how he gets over 120 even with a full-time defined starting role. I think what we're moving... We're, we're getting to a point, and this is something where I think, like I said, the last 10 years have really shown it, but I think it, it, it especially picked up with the Rays adopting the, the opener process and using bulk starters, is that more and more starters are now going to be this more kind of bulk three to four inning, maybe five, almost like a swingman type, mm. where you essentially build a rotation with more options who throw fewer innings. You use more of your bullpen, you have more... Uh, optionable guys. You have more guys like Hicks who you're thinking, okay, if he can keep his stuff up two times through the order, the bullpen can handle the rest. We got, we, you know, we have more than enough uh, lower leverage kind of high usage guys it, that we, you know, that I think, you know, you look at the Giants, you know, maybe that's Tristan Beck, maybe that's Sean Jelly, maybe that's Eric Miller, you know. Um, and I think, you know, I think we're very much at a point where beyond the top like 20 starters in baseball, top 20 to 30, you're, I don't know if we're really going to see starters get developed the same way, where we're not the teams aren't necessarily going to be aiming for the 180 to 200 inning workhorse. If that happens, if you just end up with a Clayton Kershaw, you know, by all by a miracle, great, you'll take it. But I think teams are adopting more to or adapting, better said, more to a reality where your rotation is maybe one guy who can give you 180 plus innings, and then you just fill in the rest as best you can. Because it just seems like, it, I guess it's one of two things. Either there is simply not enough pitching anymore in baseball, or or there is not enough emphasis being placed on being able to get a guy to carry a full starter's workload, or that's just not important anymore. And teams are kind of just at this point reorganizing how they want to use a rotation, and whether or not it just becomes essentially one giant bullpen. You know, I guess mm -hmm. that, that would be my take for the week, is we're, we're heading toward a future where MLB pitching staffs are just one giant bullpen. Where the roles, the, the the roles between starter and reliever get more and more blurred till there's really no differentiation at all. Where you have a guy like Hicks, who yeah, nominally he is a starter, but he may only throw three or four innings. And then you mm -hmm. might hand the ball off to a guy who gives you two innings, to another guy who gives you another inning, and another inning, and another inning. You know, we we've wondered, I think, and 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 for what it's worth, the, the playoff or postseason strategy of you get your starter through the lineup two times, and you hand it off to a million one-inning arm guys. The the Braves uh, strategy that they've used to pretty good effect. Um, I don't. That's not a realistic option for a hundred and sixty-two game season. You know, you will burn through too many arms. You will. Someone will get hurt. You just. You need to have the depth capable of having a guy who can go through a lineup at least twice, ideally three times, or at the very least give you five innings, whichever comes first. But I do think we're seeing teams continue to lower that bar as to what does a starter need to do in today's game. You know, and I think with Hicks, it really is just going to be give us four or five innings and we'll let the bullpen ideally take care of the rest. And I don't know, maybe the Giants have hopes that Hicks can be a more traditional 180 inning plus guy. And whatever use, you know, however much he pitches this year is just the beginning of a rebuilding program, so to speak, to get him back up to that height. But I also wouldn't be surprised if something like this isn't doesn't just become more and more of the norm. You know, hmm. where instead of, you know, you go out and you, you give your big contract to a Blake Snell or a Jordan Montgomery, you instead say, why don't we just give a third of that money or half that money or whatever, or take take that money and split it up amongst three guys and build essentially a starter and a half out of them. Is that a good strategy? I don't know. We're, we've we've seen it play out to success with the Rays, but they're also magic. We've seen other teams struggle more with that. But I, I do think we're at a point where the role of the starting pitcher is fundamentally changing. And I think you can see that in in what Jordan Hicks is getting. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, and obviously it depends on, on how Hicks performs this year and going forward for the length of that contract. But I wouldn't be surprised if this is something we end up seeing more and more too, particularly when you consider that pitchers in free agency, starting pitchers uh, in free agency, you're almost never going to get a guy 
in the peak of, or what would be considered the peak of his career. You know, Blake Snell hit free agency at 30. Jordan Montgomery, uh, I believe, is 29, uh, 31, actually, sorry. You know, the one starter who was available in free agency this offseason under the age of 30, uh, or the top starter, I should say, under the age of 30, Yoshinobu Yamamoto, he got his big deal, obviously, because he is a top 15 global talent. But I think more likely, you know, when you when you have a, a guy like Blake Snell available in the market for as talented as he is, I think teams are now having that reflexive feel of, do we really want to commit a tenth of our payroll, or, or more than that, better said, I guess, a fifth of our entire annual payroll to one dude to throw 180 innings, or do we want to commit half of that money to three guys who can combined throw 300 innings or, or, or something along those lines? Again, we'll have to wait to see how it plays out, but... I, I do wonder if Hicks essentially presages some kind of significant change in the way things go forward. Again, we've already been seeing it happen, the way the starter has been diminished. Partic again, you know, the raise with the opener and the bulk reliever strategy have, you know, really pushed, uh, spurred things forward in that direction. But I, I'm curious now what that's going to look like in free agency, because I think this will be a pretty major shift going forward. And it's funny because I think about college baseball, too. This is not happening on the college level, John. Like these arms, they're going like Paul Skeens yeah. is like, hey, man, if I need to throw nine innings to win a title for my LSU Tigers, I'm going to do it. If Tennessee has to send these guys in for crazy amounts of uh, uh, pitches, I they're just going to do it. And I wonder if that permeates down uh, because well, of that, where things are headed. And that's an interesting debate, too, because what we're seeing with college and, and Major League Baseball, college baseball or the NCAA and Major League Baseball is you are seeing some of those cross some threads they're starting to work a lot more together now yeah than it seems like I, they have in years past and i think wes johnson going to lsu is probably one of those kind of watershed moments for oh this is something that would never have happened in the past yeah an mlb coach uh leaving it or, or a guy leaving an mlb coaching position to take a college coaching position even if it is head coach of one of the best programs in the country that's still mm. most people i think if you you know if that happened 10 years most people would have said that's a huge step down but, you know, you've started to see not and not just the personnel, but also the ideas that are starting to go back and forth. You know, like you, I, I do wonder because, you know, college baseball has always had the Friday starter, the Saturday starter. Mm. You, know, you have your two you two guys at the top of the rotation. But I do wonder if, in a sense, almost Major League Baseball is starting to emulate that. Mm. If Major League Baseball teams are just going to say, essentially, we have our Friday guy, we have our Saturday guy. And then the rest of the the rest of the pitching staff is fills in as needed. Yeah. You no. Know? And it certainly seems like that's how things have operated in the postseason for a lot of teams. I think we saw, you know, and I think the postseason, you still do need that third starter. We saw the, the one of the big problems with Atlanta is they just did not have that third starter behind Spencer Strider and Max Fried. And they, they certainly have made moves this offseason to try to do better than Bryce Elder as a third starter. I think uh, similarly with the Phillies, with Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler, but then uh, not as much of a step down to, to Ranger Suarez as it was for, for Atlanta to Bryce Elder, but similarly... Um, not having that kind of reliable third start. I think the Diamondbacks had uh, ran into similar issues going from Zach Gallon to Merrill Kelly to Brandon Fott, although Fott, I think, actually probably outpitched Kelly, but regardless. Um, but I do wonder if that's something where we are just going to get to a point that rotations, for the most part, have one or two guys, like I said, who are the kind of aces of your staff, and then everyone else just fills in as needed when possible, you know, with varying roles or... You know, start again. Starters who only throw a few innings, and 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 look, I don't since I don't follow college baseball closely, as you may or may not know. Um, For now, John, the thirds the every third year starter, I get you a little bit more in the every Tennessee. I get this much closer. Um, yeah. The third starter on a college baseball team's rotation, how many innings do they throw in their given starts usually? Well, it depends. So, like Tennessee was unique last year because they had three legitimate MLB first round arms, and mm -hmm. Drew Beam, Chase Burns, and Chase Dollander. So they could go long. Dollander, obviously, or uh, Burns kind of imploded early on in the year, and then he moved to the bullpen and was electric and was just unhittable uh, for their road to Omaha. But you put in Andrew Lindsay, he moved to the Friday night spot, and he was going 6-7. I mean, I would say the majority were going 6 at okay. minimum. Okay. So I'm, but I'm I don't curious. think that's the norm across college baseball. Yeah, I guess I'd be curious to know is like how many college teams are already doing something where it's like, yeah, top guy goes 6 or 7, second guy mm -hmm. goes 6 or 7. But after that, if you can just get us to five, you're golden. We'll take care of it from there. And the you know they do too. Also, they have a Tuesday night game, which yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with, which is Tony Vitale uh, here. He just used that as like a uh, 
kind of i mean it, it's brutal if you're covering tennessee baseball on a tuesday night because you're playing nobody it's like an xavier you're playing it's just a tune-up game they come in for a buy uh buying game and tennessee wins 24 to 5 whatever and yeah oh it's it, they there's some brutal scorers i can send you uh from tennessee baseball on tuesday nights but um like run rules very comp like we're just like all right let's end it after seven um but you try out a bunch of different arms and see where everybody's at. So you just plug in eight, nine, ten different guys, and you're just doing a hodgepodge. And whoever's starting on Tuesday is never going to be a weekend starter guy during the year. Yeah, it's just a totally different world. Well, and that's kind of what it feels like where 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 Major League Baseball is to a certain degree going is yeah. You know, you, maybe that the the equivalent of the Tuesday night starter is a guy like Jordan Hicks, where it's like mm. he's not going to start a postseason game for the Giants unless something goes. Uh, completely bonkers. Although it's a good question at this point for the Giants, who actually would start that postseason game? But I don't think that's the thing Giants fans are going to have to worry about because I don't really see. I don't think Hicks makes any real difference in them being a postseason team or not. I, I think they're still probably too far back in in the NL West race and and the NL. You say part. that, but we did not see the Diamondbacks coming this year. No, but we still felt I think that there was some some real dark horse potential to the Diamondbacks. Whereas you look at the Giants and you go, there is not a lot of depth here, and there's not a lot of ceiling. You know, there's. They're, they're, I, don't, I think they are they're missing some of the particularly some of the ceiling that the that the Diamondbacks do. Um, but regardless, I, I you know I, I do wonder if that's kind of where we're going is hmm. you have again, you have your two top guys and then it's more of a okay, well, we'll get this guy who can give us four or five and then or we'll just do bullpen games semi regularly. And I, again, I don't know that that can really work in the regular season because one hundred and sixty two games is a lot of games. You know, it's you're covering. Uh, what is that math? 162 times at least, or times nine. That's you're covering 1,458 innings over the course of a season. You know, uh, uh, divide that up amongst uh, 13 guys. That's still 110 innings apiece. And a lot of relievers are just simply not going to get to those numbers. You know, the relievers with the highest innings totals, by and large, you, you, they're not getting above 75, 80. We're talking about pure relievers. So you're still going to need guys who can give you at least 120 innings. But I imagine. That maybe maybe that's just what MLB teams are starting to set the cap at, which is if we can, you know, if a guy can give us at least 120 innings, that's fine, as long as they're 120 quality innings, as opposed to maybe something more akin to a Lucas Giolito of 180 innings, but the other six, the 60 beyond 120, are mediocre to bad. You know, um, it, it, it's an interesting strategy. Is how what the division of innings and the responsibilities therein are going to look like? Because I think. That is a that is something that is changing at a fundamental level in the game in a way that, you know, it we've seen it gradually change because obviously there are no longer, you know, we're not seeing guys throw 20 complete games a season anymore or or, or doing the kind of things that like Madison Bumgarner did in the 2014 postseason. Um, we've already started to see that, but this this really does feel like we're seeing a, a pronounced uh, league wide shift in how innings are divided up between starters and relievers and whether or not there even will be things. Uh, differentiations like starter or reliever going forward we shall see john but it is something to monitor and john taylor might be uh might be onto something here but i occasionally i i come up with with decent points not occasionally pretty every often uh, john that's why you're on the podcast every week you're one of my favorite and smartest baseball minds out there today john marcus stroman the Yankees bring in Stroman, sticking yep. with the starting pitching market. Um, what do you make of the Yankees ultimately going with Stroman over taking a more expensive, maybe better gamble on a Jordan Montgomery or Blake Snell here? Yeah, and it's funny to talk about Stroman now because he's pretty much the antithesis to what I was talking about. Because Stroman is your, your mm. set it and forget it, you know, 150 plus innings, third starter. You know, you don't worry about him in this in, in that sense. There's if if Hicks is a high potentially high ceiling low floor gamble, Stroman is more of a high floor kind of middle ceiling gamble. Mm. Um, I think it, it makes sense for the Yankees because they they let they let go of a lot of their starting pitching depth in the Juan Soto trade um, in sending I think it was five players ultimately in total to to San Diego, most of the uh, four of them pitchers. So between that and uh, the loss of Luis Severino, the loss of Domingo Herman. Um, that rotation got thinned out pretty badly this offseason. I think Stroman is a good, uh, a good safeguard against having to use too many rookie guys or, or against having to try to uh, flounder around for some quad A uh, off-the-wire arms. And I think it is a more sensible financial move than a Blake Snell. I think, I think the difference here is if the Yankees were not, one, already uh, committed to paying Carlos Rodon a considerable sum of money for the next few seasons, 
and two, presumably already talking uh, to Scott Boris about what a Juan Soto extension would look like, or at least trying to figure out what the numbers for that might look like on top of the money they owe Aaron Judge and the money they owe Garrett Cole and et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. Maybe there would have been room for a guy like Snell, but I, I have to imagine that, you know, that Cashman, Brian Cashman probably felt better with the cheaper yet in some de- to some degree uh, more consistent alternative in Stroman than taking the big risk on Snell. And I think it makes sense for where the Yankees rotation is because they don't really need that number one type starter. They already have one in Garrett Cole, and you could argue they have another in Carlos Rodon if Rodon is healthy. What they needed were those consistent stable innings, five to six innings at a time uh, per start from Stroman, who I think the, the thing you worry about with Stroman, he's not a strikeout guy. Uh, he had a walk rate spike last year that didn't come with any additional strikeouts. So that's got to be a little concerning, but he's still one of the premier ground ball guys in the, in the big leagues. Uh, I'm not crazy about the Yankees defensive infield, but I think it's good enough to make him work. Um, and, you know, he's, you know, the, I think the, the, the Marcus Stroman fun fact that, that always goes around is he has never once put up a FIP above four in his hmm. career. Every single season on aggregate, his FIP has been below four. He has a career, a career ERA of 365, a career FIP of 363. He's pretty much always bang on with his peripherals. And, you know, for as much as, again, it doesn't feel like there's a, a whole lot of, like, Marcus Stroman's not an exciting signing. He, he's not a guy who takes a team from would-be contender to full-on contender. He's not a signing that takes a, a would-be title contender into a favorite, but he is a guy who provides stability, ideally. He's a guy who provides, uh, f- uh, who gives you the flexibility to to kind of let your younger arms continue to develop instead of having to rush the bigs. And I think, again, financially for the Yankees, it makes more sense to have a short-term, smaller commitment to a guy like Stroman than it is to try to make a long-term deal with Snell work or a, or a long-term deal with Jordan Montgomery. Uh, the rumor going around was that the Yankees offered Snell something like five one fifty and didn't hear anything, so they pivoted to Stroman. Um, maybe, maybe you know, if they'd waited out a little longer, Snell might have dropped into something like, okay, I'll do like a three ninety or something and and do a short term high AAV deal. But I think but the isn't Yankees Stroman a sneaky better? It's so weird to say this, but safer three year play he's than Blake Snell. Safer. Yeah. He's a one hundred percent safer play, and I think especially given that. The free agent pitching market beyond. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70 percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Tim, uh, and leaving, uh, leaving Snell and uh, Montgomery. Leaving Snell and Montgomery out of it for now, the free agent pitching market beyond uh, that's left now with Stroman gone and those two aside is pretty weak. Mm. You know, it, now you're down to the Mike Clevenger, Michael Lorenzen, uh, I don't even know who comes after that. Mike, uh, you know, is that Granky if he wants to come at James, James Paxton, Matt Boyd, uh, Rich Hill, if you if he's still trying to pitch like the, the market on starters beyond the top two guys is pretty much done at this point. Mm-hmm. Stroman was the last best option left that wasn't one of those two guys. So I think, again, especially for a Yankees team that needed, I think, another established starter definitely had to do had to add someone. I think Stroman was the best bet they could have made. So I, I like it for the New York for the most part. I think obviously the X factor too is Stroman is a, a little bit of a character. Uh, certainly he has a reputation obviously for being a, a very high intensity, high energy guy. Um, I think kind of in the same mold as a Josh Donaldson where, you know, that can be a great thing sometimes, but that can also wear on guys other times. I think there's a real pronounced chip on Stroman's shoulder that uh, again is a, is a plus and also can definitely be a minus. But, you know, hopefully for the Yankees, it, you know, the, 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 you know, that, that works out and that Stroman stays on his best behavior. And I I think that should work out because I think particularly pitching for a contending team, pitching for, you know, in a big market, pitching for a storied franchise, I think is the kind of thing that a guy like Marcus Stroman would really want and appreciate. So, you know, again, it's, it's a bet. It's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's it's not a risk-free bet. There's no such thing, but. I think it's as safe a choice as the Yankees could have made if they weren't going to go the Snell Montgomery route. And, I agree. And for what it's worth, it seems like they never were going to. And I wonder how much of it stemmed from the Carlos Rodon 
situation from last year. I, again, I think that if they didn't have Rodon on the books, they might have been more inclined to go after a guy I think like so Snell. Too. But especially with, with how little they got out of Rodon last year, how bad he was, there probably has to be that worry of like, look, we might be on the hook for a lot of money to a guy who is simply not going to be worth it. Now we can't do that with him and Blake yeah. Snell, who two no, people with a yeah. You're just you're in you're just you're in contract that's a, hell. That's a chips all in push that I would expect more from a team like I don't know. I mean, I could still see like a Texas maybe just randomly jumping in there and being like Blake Snell. How would you like five years and 150 million dollars? You know? Yeah, I mean, Why they not? just We'd... won a World Series and got yeah. nothing from Jacob Degrom. Money's not real in Texas, so no. Um... Although no. I guess the, the argument in Texas is said as well, we've got Jacob Degrom, Max Scherzer, and Tyler Melee coming back presume, at some point in the second half. What do we need starters for? We can get through the first half of the season with. Well, hold on. You, know, like a, you just can't Andrew pencil Haney. in Jacob Degrom. No, and I and look, I don't. I'm not. I'm not saying that the Rangers should do that. I just. Are there people still that doing that in 2024? Are there Rangers fans right now? Like they're texting their buddies. There they're like, dude, I cannot wait people. for Jacob Degrom to be ready to go come September. There are always going to be people doing the hey, the second half return from injury guys is as good as any trade deadline edition. Mm-hmm. That person is named Mike Elias, but. Or any any GM, honestly. Look, Craig Breslow is going to be doing the same thing with. Although that that implies that they're actually good Red Sox pitchers just waiting on the injured list, when that is just straight up not the case. But mm. hey, that that's a topic for a whole other podcast. Go Sox. Yeah. Um, go Sox. Why or why not, John Taylor Evan Carter ends up winning Rookie of the Year in twenty twenty four. Uh, I mean, I think it's as good a case as any. I mean, I don't. You know, looking the easiest way I find for for rookie of the year stuff. Well, no, because I was going to say Yamamoto's in the NL. I think mm. NL rookie of the year is probably a pretty safe bet. That's Yash- that's Yoshinobu Yamamoto. Yeah, but uh, if you look at uh, in these amusing fan graphs uh, board, uh, look at the 2023 updated. Here are the guys I think in the AL who, presuming they get the call at some point, uh, if, if they either start the year with the team or get called up at some point later in the year, will probably be part of that conversation. Jackson Holiday for sure, and I think that's probably the biggest competition with Carter for for just at least offseason favorites for AL Rookie of the Year. I I guarantee Holiday will come up at some point in the season. He is too good to spend the entire year in the minors, barring injury. Um, he has been phenomenal so far in the minor league, so that's one to keep an eye on. Uh, I think similarly, Junior Caminero in Tampa Bay, with it looking like Wander Franco is never going to play Major League Baseball again. Uh, the Razor, I assume, going to be trying every possible option they have in the left side of the infield to help fill that spot. Um, I, I don't think Caminero is going to be the starting shortstop. I don't think he has the defensive chops to do it, but I think he's certainly going to get plenty of playing time. Uh, and here's the other name I find really intriguing. The other guy who might cut into Carter's Rookie of the Year potential, one of his own future teammates, Florida's own Wyatt Langford. Hmm. Who, uh, it's funny, we just... I, I'm always going to be doing this. We... Uh, Fangraphs just ran its 2024 Zips projections for the Texas Rangers, and I just want to note that Zips, the projection system, very, very high on Wyatt Langford. His projected stat line, 599 plate appearances, a 264, 324, 489 line, a 122 OPS plus, uh, and a weighted on base average of 346, adds up to two and a half wins above replacement. He actually projects for a slightly higher war, WOBA, and OPS plus than Evan Carter. Um, I think, you know, and they're, they're probably, you know, it's a, I guess it turned into more of a Carter Langford, Texas Rangers thing. They're going to get there in different directions. Carter is more of a patient hitter. As we saw during the postseason, a fantastic eye at the plate. Langford is a big time power guy with just tools out the wazoo. Um, you can argue as to which gives you the higher ceiling. Theoretically, I mean, Carter, I think that with Carter, the bet is that the floor will probably be higher. There's less boom bust with him. Uh, whereas Langford is maybe a little bit of a riskier prospect or project. But um, I think certainly, look, I, I don't expect Carter to be as good as he was in his short stint uh, with Texas last year. I mean, you know, you look at the at the numbers he put up, uh, which I'm just pulling up right now, um, you know, a 412 batting average on balls in play that that's not going to happen again, mm. you know. Um, and you can see it, you can see it reflected in the expected stats too. He posted a, a weighted on base average in, uh, and this also tiny sample size, 75 plate appearances of 435. Uh, the stack cast expected stats figure that's closer to, should be, should have been closer to three, or would have, it would have projected or expected a 339 WOBA. Um, and look, there's plenty of good in there. The exit velocities are good. The barrel rates are good. The hard hit rate is good. Like I said, the plate discipline is good. 
but you know he's still you know he doesn't turn 22 until until late August. There's still going to be a lot of adjustments he's going to make. You can see how the way pitchers adjusted to him uh, over the course of the postseason started attacking him more down and away with breaking balls. He's going to have to learn how to lay off those pitches, how to how to you know do optimal damage on that kind of stuff. But I think as of right now, and again without knowing what the Orioles are planning to do with Holiday, um, assuming that Caminero doesn't really have a consistent playing time spot, and assuming that the Rangers don't call up Langford right away. I feel like Carter is probably your AL Rookie of the Year favorite. Um, I mean, who knows? Again, there, there are plenty of other names I could I could mention here. Ricky Tiedemann for the Blue Jays, who I think will probably play a big role with them. Uh, potentially Kobe Mayo with the Orioles as well. Uh, so you're going Kobe Mayo over Jackson Holiday? No, I think I, I think the if you want a one, two, three, I think it'd be Carter, Holiday, and let's go with Langford over Caminero. Um, but mm. I think Mayo is a guy who I, no, actually probably not Mayo, but where does Mayo um, play? He is a outfielder. Okay. So I, they I think brought back I'll, Cedric Mullins. I'm just trying to figure out the path because that's the other part of this too. Is you got to figure out pass forward and where they would fit. And yeah, and I think it. Well, I think with Baltimore, it's a little harder to find outfield spots than it would be for yeah. a guy like Holiday just to take over shortstop full time. Um, so I think that that is just going to happen. Um, Speaking of Holiday, you want a crazy stat from Baseball America? I always I love crazy stats. Okay. Um, there are 13 MLB teams, um, and JJ Cooper has this great MLB writer over there at Baseball America, and he said there are 13 MLB teams who have never had a prospect rank number one on Baseball America's top 100 prospect list in the 35-year history. Mm-hmm. Um, the Orioles have three in a row now, John. Unreal. What what the they've bo- done with that farm system is absolutely unreal. It's unprecedented. And so there's only been four teams that have had three or more number one prospects ever. The Braves have had six. Go Braves. Uh, mm-hmm. Orioles and Rays have had four now. And the Twins have had three. Um, there have been multiple uh, players who led top 100 prospect lists in back-to-back years. Uh, Andrew Jones, Joe Maurer. So this is why this is important, too. The names who <laughs> lead these lists, Andrew Jones, Joe Maurer, Bryce Harper, Wander Franco, obviously, is a little bit different now for uh, very bad reasons. Um, J.D. Drew was actually number one in 99. People forget, uh, not to turn this into yeah. old man remembers, but people forget. <laughs> here how- is the J.D. Drew hour here for Dad John Taylor. J.D. Drew was as an amateur player. Mm-hmm. Just a phenomenal player. Um, really cannot stress that enough. No, I mean, J.D. Drew is, I think it's just like for me too, I was older. Uh, I was young when he was so eight years old when he's at number one on that list. So I only know old JD drew where it's just right field, just raked a little bit and could barely move and just nice little power bat in the six hole. Um, but I just think it's crazy that Adley Rutschman, obviously number one in 2022, uh, Gunnar Henderson, number one in 2023 and now Jackson holiday, number one in 2024. So the list, when you look at who have made the cut and who had like Jackson holiday, Go ahead and buy the stock. Like the Orioles are going to go three for three and multi-time all-stars and everything else. It's it's really unbelievable what they're churning out here without the misses over the last couple of years in, in Baltimore. Yeah, and just imagine if they've been able to add some pitching to that pipeline. I mean, I know one <laughs> what of those, if, John? It, I know one of those guys, obviously highly ranked is Grayson Rodriguez, but didn't I go mean, well last year. No, and and some of that's the adjustment, but I think and, and some of this too is like, you know, Baltimore lucked into uh, a number one pick when a generational catcher was was available, and then lucked into both a number a top two pick when similar a seemingly another generational talent was available, and for Arizona to take the other superstar kid or son of a big leaguer instead of the first superstar son of a big <laughs> leaguer. It's also fun mm-hmm. to think that that Matt Holiday has another probably as good if not better son coming Does in he? the wake of J- yes Jackson Holiday's brother. Uh, whose name I'm looking up because I don't remember it off the top of my head. Better be uh, Cash Holiday. What, it, what is uh, it? Ethan Holiday. He is oh. 16 years old. Mm. He is already starting to rise up uh, uh, prospective draft and prospect rankings. Matt Holiday did right with his kids, man. They, he is building an absolute dynasty <laughs> out of his own loins. Um, wait, so he wasn't so bad the... himself either. Who were the number one players for the Braves beyond Andrew Jones and Chipper Jones? So that's two. Uh, Acuna. Acuna. That makes sense. Um, I'm doing oh, do you not top. have it in front of you? No, I'm guessing oh, right okay. now. I'm doing. I'm guessing who else would have been. Um, so that's three for 30 years. Um, 
Hold on, I'm going to get this. Tommy Hansen probably wasn't number one. Um, womp womp. But I'm thinking Ty Hansen was up there. Um, There's a lot of hype back in the day for him. Uh, Medlin, I wouldn't say. I'm trying to think of any pitchers. I guess probably not pitchers. I'm thinking um, no for call. No. Oh, Freddie Freeman? I, I found the list. Okay. It's, okay. Uh, so you, Chipper Jones, Andrew Jones, who did it twice. Uh, okay. Ronald Acuna. So we got mm-hmm. those three. Uh, Jason Hayward. Oh, forgot Hayward. Yeah. Forgot Hayward. And I, mm. I want to give you, I want to give you three guesses to get the last one. I'll be ama- I'll be stunned if you get it. Okay. I would not. Uh, I would never have guessed. Is he a pitcher or a, a position player? A pitcher. And I, had, I didn't say Medlin or Hanson. It's not one of those. It's not. It's not one of. Uh, it's not one of the young guys. Medlin, Hanson, or Brandon Beachy. None of those dudes. None of those dudes. Okay. Yeah. So how? What year time frame? This is cheating a little bit. Uh, early nineties. Oh. oh. Okay. Um. Denny Nagel? No. Mark, not Mark Will. Um, um, oh, Kevin Millwood? Nope. Kerry Lightenberg. I was waiting for you to say Kerry Lightenberg. It's not Kerry Lightenberg, but I did just want to have a let's remember some Kerry Lightenberg. Yeah, Mike Remlinger. Steve Avery. Oh my God, Steve Avery. Steve mm. Avery. Goodness gracious. That it's amazing that that list is uh two one get one existing Hall of Famer, one potential Hall of Famer, a guy in Acuna who, if things continue as is, will be a Hall of Famer, mm. um, a guy in Hayward who, for a very short period of time there, looked like a future Hall of Famer, and Steve Avery. It's a good list. I don't, think, I don't think anything better illustrates the variance of prospects than having that be the spread of number one guys. No. Or I mean, you can even look at the fact that one of the Orioles' uh, number one guys was Matt Weeters. Yeah, and he was solid. Uh, Like he didn't have a Hall of Fame great, but he was solid. He was fine. Um, He was. He was. I think it would have been very funny if the universe with Adley Rutschman had just done Weeters 2.0 and just given the Orioles the exact same outcome. But but I think Orioles fans would have been okay with that. Like Weeters was good. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the... I mean, he lived up to the hype, but Weeders was good. Well, that's the thing about... You gotta look at it this way. You could have been it could have been a Bart situation, and it was sure, not a Bart situation. Been, he he could have been Matt Clement. Yeah there, yeah, there are way worse ways that could have gone. But I think that's that's the thing with having a number one prospect is how do you how do you manage that hype of, you know, this guy was named a number one prospect, and instead he turned out to be a perfectly fine MLB regular who, you know, I mean, Matt Weeders. Matt Weeders finished with a career wins above replacement baseball reference version of... 18.3. It's fine. It's not great. I think like he I retired mean, young. What was his age? Uh, he retired at after his age 34 season, which was the pandemic shortened season. Okay. So yeah, I mean, it didn't you look go at, that long. What's up? Didn't go that long. Like he didn't have like a crazy long career behind the play. He no, didn't really no, transition. No, he, didn't. he had a bat where you could have seen him early on, like maybe not do the first base Joe Maurer thing, but. Still probably could have. I, I don't know. He, you could have seen even with the B plus solid career him just hang around for a long time. Sure. But I mean, just keeping I mean, keep in mind that 18.3 wins above replacement. That is less and significantly less than among others. Uh, Carlos Guillen, Grady mm. Sizemore, Denard Spann, uh, Jose Quintana, Paul Canerco, Baltimore's favorite, J.J. Hardy, uh, Sixto Lizcano, Josh Josh Hamilton finishing with fewer career wins above replacement than Melvin Moore is just wow. that is a fun fun stat right there. Melvin uh, Mora, yeah, that's a name we haven't thought. Speaking of Orioles favorites from bygone days, uh, that's Matt Weeders finished with ten wins fewer in his career than Tim McCarver did. Although Tim McCarver played for twenty one seasons, so that's maybe not entirely fair. Uh, Brandon Phillips outwarded him. Vernon Wells outwarded him. Uh, I don't want to turn this into the let's crap on Matt Weeders hour, but you know, it's, it's being a number one prospect is rough, man. Cause those, yeah. those expectations are very, very high. And you know, if some guys meet them and some guys finish with a career about half as valuable as Carlos Guillen's did. So, or was rather. There you go. Um, John Taylor, final thing here as we wrap up, uh, this edition of the pod, uh, buy or sell. The Diamondbacks are in a position to win more regular season games than they did a year ago. Hmm, that's a tough one. Uh, 
I'm going to cheat a little and use uh, and go to our, we have our we again, because Fangrass <laughs> has his Zips projections for the Diamondbacks. Mm -hmm. uh, and Dan Zimborski, the Zips maestro. Mm -hmm. uh, ballpark. That we find out his name is part of the Zips that I did yes. not realize because I'm a dummy. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just doing Zips well, for years, not, John. And it, it never, it just never came together. It's not called Zip Bors, Zips Borski. Mm -hmm. It should be. I'm going to pitch that to him. Uh, uh, Dan Dan ballparked this current Arizona roster uh, at about 84 to 88 wins. They finished last year, what, 84 wins? I think that's right. 87? I, I should probably look it up. I'm gonna say, if I'm did they get to 87? Um, let's find out together. Uh, the 2023 Diamondbacks went 84 and 78. So I was going to say, I didn't think they got 87. Oh, high. I'll high. I think I'll take the over on that. Hmm. I mean... Part of it is this was a relatively healthy team last year. Like they got full seasons out of Kettle Marte, Christian Walker, Lourdes Gurriel Jr., uh, Corbin Carroll, who played 155 games. Really, the only you know the the guys that didn't play as much um, it were not really guys I think they were counting on necessarily. Mm. Similarly, pitching wise, they got 210 innings out of Zach Gallon, 177 innings out of Merrill Kelly. That's pretty much as you would have uh, hoped and expected for them. I think the big thing with the Diamondbacks where, you know, where that difference has to be made up is the rotation, you know, so I think Eddie Rodriguez alone, plus a better Brandon Fott probably is enough to get them over 84 wins. Similarly, I think going from Evan Longoria to Eugenio Suarez at third base is probably a good size bump. I think having a little more Gabriel Moreno in the, in, in the, in the monitors is probably a good thing. Um, I think I'll take the over probably and also a full season of Paul Seawald to make up for the Diamondbacks bullpen, which for the most of the year is just kind of a train wreck, but is still not particularly good right now. Um, I'll take the over, but not by a significant amount. I can see this team finishing like 86, 87 wins, maybe if everything shakes out. But yeah, I, I don't think the Diamondbacks have made that big jump. And granted, you know, like I, I don't know that they were in the position to. I, you could argue that they probably should have coming off of, a, of an NL pennant win and a World Series appearance. Ideally, you'd like to have seen them have a, a, a bigger offseason than Eddie Rodriguez and and bring back Lourdes Gurriel Jr. Um, but at the same time, I think they have a, they have a solid roster. I think um, there's probably the feeling that you know, maybe last year was a little early and that this core hasn't really even, you know, come together necessarily. I would love to see if they'd be, if they'd make a play for like a Blake Snell. I think that would be a really fascinating one. Um, otherwise, you know, you look at where they're kind of projected to be a little, a little light. Uh, I think, you know, maybe a better bat at the DH spot. I think a guy like a, a Brandon Belt would make a lot of sense there. Maybe bring JD Martinez back to Arizona. Um, similarly, uh, again, the, the bullpen could probably use some bolstering. I don't know that they don't really make sense for Josh Hader, given that they already have Seawald in place. Um, but there's certainly, I think, room to add there, uh, beyond having Seawald and, and, uh, Kevin, the gink ginkle. Uh, I think it's a little thin beyond those two guys, but overall, I mean, this, this is a very solid roster that I think is pretty comfortably in that better than 500 territory. So I'll, I'll be I'll be an optimist for the Diamondbacks. Let's let's say let's take the over on 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 their 2024 wins finishing ahead of 2023. I think it's down to how you feel about a the Padres bouncing back because the mm -hmm. Padres had the season from hell last year and did. AJ did not tear it down. They're still like you, look you move on from Juan Soto, but there's still a lot of talent on this there roster. Is, I, I I worry that they haven't really done anything to like they they needed to replace Soto in some capacity or another. Yeah. And they have not done that. That, that simply just has not happened. They could also really bring back Blake Snow. I, I just don't see it because there's just too much. A lot of what I think the Padres were doing was just tied up in let's. We have so many big future commitments to Tatis, to Manny Machado, to uh, Joe Musgrove, to you Darvish, to uh, who am I forgetting in there? Uh, Matt Waldron. <laughs> Knuckleballer Supreme, Matt Waldron. I, I, I think part of the thinking with with San Diego is we cannot take any on any more of these big deals. I, the large part of why they moved Soto, because I think they were, there was probably a feeling that we're not going to resign him. So we, we need to get something back for him. I, I would think for Arizona, I don't necessarily think the problem is going to come from within the division because I don't think much of the giants or Padres and certainly the Rockies are going to be a mess. Uh, I think it's more, you know, does one, the NL central being a little bit better next year. Cause I expect, I expect the Cardinals to be better. I expect the Reds to be better. I expect the Brewers to be about where they were and the Cubs, probably about where they were as well. You know, does that make the NL wildcard a little tighter? 
Similarly, I, a lot of this, I think, hinges too on what the Mets are going to do and what the Mets are going to look like. Are they going to commit to this is not really a contending season? Even if we end up in a maybe contending position, we're not going to go crazy or go all out. You know, similarly, are the you know what can the Marlins do? What can uh, you know what is it going to look like for? And I, again, I think that's probably where the Padres and the Giants come into play. But I, I feel pretty good that the Diamondbacks are uh, probably the second place team in the NL West, uh, pretty comfortably. But uh, I think at the end of the day, though, that still just adds up to a wild card spot. So, you know, and I think that's why I, th I feel like for them, like, you know, maybe a slightly more aggressive offseason because they are in that place where every single additional win is going to be so important to them that they want to maximize every chance this roster has, um, particularly when you get into the fact that, you know, beyond, um, you know, obviously they had, uh, they already got Corbin Carroll up, but, you know, beyond that, there are not really any major prospects still to come. I mean, you can argue they're going to get better, ideally, out of Brandon Fott. Uh, they'll have more Jordan. I think Jordan Lawler is probably the big guy. Uh, you know, I should, I should correct that. They'll have Jordan Lawler, ideally, playing some. But, you know, Drew Jones is still a, way, is still a ways away. Uh, their 2023 top draft pick, Tommy Troy, is, is a ways away. Um, they're, you know, and then it's more guys like Slade Ciccone, Jorge Barossa, uh, Justin Martinez, Dominic Fletcher, who are more on the kind of roster margin stuff, but they're, you know, assuming Lawler doesn't get the starting shortstop job over Geraldo Perdomo, there's not really going to be any major help coming from the minor leagues. So you got to figure, you know, if you're, if you're the Diamondbacks, if you want to take that, take that shot, you kind of need to bring in more outside talent. So I, I kind of wish they'd done a little more, but I still feel like this is a really solid team overall anyway. I just don't think they've done enough and I don't necessarily love no, I, and I agree with their this. core to bet on them bouncing back into it, like them building off 84 and then going to 87, 90 range. I just don't see it. No. And I, I think, I think like Dan, I agree with Dan that I think this is at probably at best, like an 88 win team. And that means um, a lot went well. And they are also probably buyers at the deadline and brought in I, some well, more, that's, that's more reinforcements. And I think that's something to keep in mind, too, is, is obviously the Zips projections only see the roster as it currently is. Yeah. And it doesn't assume necessarily that this team will get better at some point during the season or that it will better said it will make moves in order to get better. So mm. I, I definitely see if Arizona's in in the wildcard race, and I think they should be, um, that they're going to make some move in there to, you know, to improve themselves. And the offseason isn't over yet. You know, I mean, we're again spring training is a less than a month away at this point but there is still time for teams to do something and there's so there's still time for arizona to address the issues it has um but i think it's it's already a pretty solid floor that that team is at right now i don't disagree uh john taylor nothing to plug because we don't plug although we still support no free Bancraft. clout go free who no free clout no, no free clout no yeah. If you Fangraph, want, if send you us want some merch. My, send us if, some stuff, and we'll yeah, put uh, if we'll you put want my back on here. You got to get it the old-fashioned way by bribing me. Yeah, hundred percent. We have no shame here. No, this is a sh this is a shame-free zone. This is like a teenager's bedroom. No shame here. We're all out. <laughs> I don't really know what that meant either. I it just it sounded wow. better in my head. Yeah. Sonic ever, youth, I like how everyone maybe? can hear the workshop process as it's going, you know? Yeah. The, the little Bruce Valanche in my head just trying to workshop jokes, but they're all coming out flat. Hey, we got to do what we got to do, John Taylor. John Taylor, always a pleasure, and I will talk to you next week. Yeah. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.